Welcome to part B of Parashat Zav. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman, and we are discussing the uh, details surrounding the priestly duties, the functions of offering up daily sacrifices to the uh, Lord, um, as we read about in um, uh, Leviticus chapter 6 and following. If you're just joining us, I highly recommend that you listen or read um, part A of my commentary. Uh, it is available at the website at graftedin.com, and you could download it as a um, PDF document, print it out if you'd like. It's about, um, I want to say it's 12 pages long this time. Yes, 12 pages long. So at the beginning here, at part B, we're going to start on page 6 under the, um, under the um, paragraph entitled, Jack Spratt could eat no fat, and neither could Israel. How'd you like that? It's a playoff, of course, the, the uh, nursery rhyme, Jack Spratt could eat no fat. His wife could eat no lean. All right, let's talk about this. In chapter 7 of Leviticus, we read about the dual prohibition concerning the consumption of animal fat, which the Hebrew term is um, chalev. And we also read about the prohibition of blood, which is called dam in Hebrew. So it's a dual prohibition. Don't eat fat, don't eat blood. Indeed, this topic will become a central point of discussion in both the Torah as well as the Talmud. Now, the Talmud is um, rabbinic writings. So um, I'm not trying to say that the Talmud is, is, is on par or authoritative as the Torah. However, um, much can be learned from the sages of antiquity, the Chazal. So... The reason we're going to quote from them today is because they give us an inside peek into many of the details uh, concerning the tabernacle and or temple that we of today, especially in church circles, are not aware of or we would not otherwise have access to. So, let's have a peek at their notes um, in this second portion of my commentary. I'm going to be focusing on one of my favorite um, uh, rabbis of antiquity. His name is... um, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon. Um, sometimes he's referred to as the Rambam or the Rambam. Um, he's also known as Maimonides. Um, goes by a few different names there. At any rate, Maimonides or the Rambam, he was the first person to write a systematic code of all Jewish law. And this is known today as the Mishneh Torah. He produced one of the great philosophic statements of Judaism, uh, referred to as the guide for the perplexed. It's, um, it's a, it, it, and he also published a commentary on the entire Mishnah, as if the Gemara wasn't enough. He served as a physician to the Sultan of Egypt. Uh, he wrote numerous books on medicine, and in his spare time, as it were, he served as a leader of Cairo's Jewish community. So he was quite a busy guy. He was... Um, He's, he's one of my favorite rabbis. In fact, he's somewhat of a philosopher. And for that reason, he's often pitted against the, uh, the likes of Rashi. Um, but um, Rambam is uh, one of my favorites. Um, he's a trusted commentator. I don't believe in everything he says, because as far as I can understand, he did not, um, he did not espouse to belief in Yeshua as the awaited Messiah. However, that does not mean that I don't look to his writings with... Um, with hopes of gaining insight. I believe he has some very, very valuable insights to the texts that I otherwise would not know of. So, let's quote some relevant texts um, uh, from the Torah, and then we're going to jump through some of the rabbinic writings, as it were, to um, help us along. The first text I want to quote is Leviticus 7.23, quote, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, You shall eat no manner of fat, of ox, or of sheep, or of goat, 
verse 26 says, um, yeah, that was verse 23, and then verse 26 says, you shall eat no manner of blood, whether it be of bird or of beast in any of your dwellings, end quote. Now compare this verse, or these verses, from last week's portion in uh, Vaikra. Leviticus 3.17 reads, quote, It shall be a perpetual statute for your generations throughout all your dwellings that you eat neither fat nor blood. End quote. So, we have consistency. Torah scholar Nachama Leibovitz has compiled a selection of relevant notes for us to use in our examination of these dual prohibitions against um, fat and blood. Should these verses, she asks, be relevant for today? And I ask the same question. Should these verses be relevant for today? In other words... In, in Messianic communities, and to be sure, Jewish communities, but the challenges to Christian communities, should we take these verses where God says to his people, um, don't eat fat and don't eat blood? And, and we're going to find out later on that it's talking about the choice fats that he says don't eat. But um, don't eat fat and don't eat blood. Should we listen to what the Torah has to say today, or should we simply tell ourselves that those were commandments of a bygone day, a bygone era, and now that the temple and the tabernacle have been destroyed... Um, there's no need to um, worry about the details of these commandments. Well, let's see if we can answer the question. Do they belong to a period when the tabernacle and the temple were present? Maybe, maybe not. In the total number of commandments compiled by um, the collection known as the Sefer HaChinuch, which we talked about in the first section of this um, audio commentary, the Sefer HaChinuch, by the way, follows the Rambam's list of commandments of the 613. It just takes his uh, um, listing, which by the way you can find also on our website, graftedin.com. Go to, let me just pull it up here real quick. Sit in front of my computer. All right. Um, on the home page of our website, look along the top, you'll see a blue strip, um, and within that blue strip, there are um, locations that you can navigate to. One of them says commentaries. Click on that, and then from there, uh, look down the uh, basically the middle of the page. And you'll see a listing of the various commentaries that I offer. Um, you'll see the weekly Torah overview, the Torah portions, the feast days, more lessons, and then a little section about myself, and then a link if you'd like to support uh, my ministry. Um, but uh, from there, click on the uh, More Lessons tab, or More Lessons link, and then from there you'll see... Um, on the more lessons, there's probably about, I don't know, 20, 25 lessons there. What the, uh, the the second lesson on the list is entitled 613 Mitzvot. Click on that and you'll see all of the um, commandments broken down into the positives and the negatives according to the Rambam. And the Sefer HaChinuk follows this list. All right. Um, the author of the Sefer HaChinuk lists the prohibition of eating fat and blood in our parasha, uh, and not earlier in Parashat Vaikra, nor does he refer to the verse, uh, verse 317 from Parashat Vaikra, where it appears for the first time. And this seems rather peculiar of Moshe, doesn't it? Sometimes the rabbis, the rabbis would come along and ask God, they wouldn't ask him literally, but they'd ask themselves midrashically, um, in a kind of a search, which is what the word Lidrosh means to search, uh, thus the noun Midrash, they would ask the text, they would dialogue with the text, why do we see the instructions showing up in this section and not in a previous section? That's basically what's going on. And the Targumic, uh, which, uh, the, the Targumim, which are the Arabic translations of the Torah, they are compared to the standard Masoretic translations of today. And it's helpful to compare these two because the Targum allowed for some paraphrasing of the original text. Uh, let me just set the background. The Targum 
is an Aramaic translation used or utilized in the first century when the Hebrew was not widely known among all communities. So what would happen in your average synagogue is we would have someone come up in Aliyah, uh, would come up to read the text of the, um, of the Torah, and he would read it in Hebrew. And then the people sitting in the audience might not have understood everything that he said in Hebrew because Hebrew had been lost to many of the common people in Yeshua's day in the first century. And thus Aramaic was one of the languages, a sister language to Hebrew. And so what would happen is we would have an attendant, a shamash as it were, who would come alongside of the aliyah, the person reading the text in Hebrew, and the, the shamash or whomever the attendant was uh, was um, um, designated the Targumist, as it were, would come along and he would expound or or translate, as it were, the Hebrew over into Aramaic. And in his in his um, explanation or in his um, translation, he would actually paraphrase and or expound upon some of the difficult um, Torah uh, words uh, used in the Hebrew portion. So. When this got written down, we've got about five or six Targums. Uh, we've got Targum Ankalos, Targum um, um, Pseudo-Jonathan, um, Targum um, um, Neophyti, uh, different Targums that are available. Um, in these Targums, we would sometimes have an explanation that would that didn't even show up originally in the Hebrew, which is okay. We do the same in our paraphrases today. Okay, So, let's first quote from the Mesorah, from the Hebrew version, and then I'm going to compare that to, um, in this case, Targum uh, Jonathan, Targum Yonatan. Quote, this is from the Mesorah, from the Hebrew. Leviticus 7.24 reads, quote, And the fat of the beast that died, and the fat of that which was torn by beasts, may be put to use, but you must not eat it. End quote. Now compare that verse to Targum Yonatan. Okay, the same verse in the Targum reads, quote, the fat of a beast which became disqualified while being slaughtered or dialed during a plague and a fat and fat of an animal that was torn by a beast may be used for any work. However, the fat of a kosher animal may not be offered up on the altar, but must not be eaten. I'm sorry, the fat of a kosher animal may be offered up on the altar, but must not be eaten. End quote. Now, <clears throat> Nahama Leibovitz informs us, quote, Rabbi Naftali Hertz Weasel, or Weasel writes, Quote, according to the translator Yonatan, which is what we just read, this was said to that generation, the desert generation. Okay, So she's giving us a little bit of an answer as to whether or not that applies to today or was back then. She's letting us know that according to Rabbi Wiesel, um, that it applies to that generation, the desert generation, the people who were there. Now so that we can get a comparison. Let's check in with the Rambam and, and the Chazal to see if they can add some insights, some more insights. This time I'm going to use Rambam's Guide for the Perplexed, uh, which I mentioned earlier uh, that he wrote. Guide for the Perplexed, uh, chapter 3, verse 48. Quote, The fat of the intestines makes us very fat. It interrupts our digestion and produces cold and thick blood. It is more fit for fuel. Blood and nevela, flesh of an animal that died of itself, are indigestible and harmful as food. Okay, interesting insight. Um, let's compare that statement with the Sefer HaChinuk, Commandment 147. Quote, Not to eat fat, that we, uh, that we not eat fat of a pure, in essence, permitted for consumption animal, that is to say a kosher animal, 
Uh, as it is stated in Leviticus 7.23, quote, you shall eat no manner of fat or ox or of sheep or of goat, end quote. The author of the Sefer HaChinuk goes on to say, I've already written about the prohibition of eating unclean food in Parashat Mishpatim. Um, actually, I think this next section... Yes, I'm sorry, let me keep reading. Um, I've already written about the prohibition of eating unclean food in Parashat Mishpatim, uh, commandment number 73, that since the body is the vessel for the soul through which it... The body is the vessel for the soul through which it functions, and according to one's merits and temperament, one will understand the way of the intelligence of the soul that there is in him and will follow its advice... It is for this reason that one must endeavor to see the fitness, see too, the fitness of his body, that it should be healthy and strong. It is well known that one's food influences the functions of the body and its good or bad health, since the body wears out daily and healthy and good flesh will be replaced through good nourishment and bad food will have us, will have a uh, uh, deleterious effect. Hence, it is one of God's great kindnesses bestowed upon us, his children, his chosen people, to keep us from all food that is harmful to our bodies and produces harmful moisture. This is the principle, the author goes on to say, in its simple sense in all forbidden food as stated above. It is well known that fat clings to the body and produces bad moisture. End quote. That's a very good um, reference there that we just read. The Sefer HaChinuk draws a scientific um, comparison between the commandment to abstain from eating um, certain choice fats as well as eating uh, or consuming blood. Let's continue reading from the Sefer HaChinuk. This time, um, commandment 73, which is the commandment which reads, not to eat trefa or unclean food. The um, author goes on to explain not to eat of trefa, as it is stated in Exodus 22.30, quote, you shall not eat any meat torn by beasts in the field, end quote. So, let me just back up again. The Sefer HaChinuk, the author, is now um, going to talk about um, not eating uh, unclean food or not eating blood, whereas before we just talked about eating fats. One of the reasons of this commandment, not to eat trefa food, um, is the fact that the body is the vessel for the soul through which it functions, and without which its, or the soul's work, can never be accomplished. Hence it, the soul, comes in its, the body's shadow, and not to its detriment, since God would not cause ill, but only good to all. The body, thus, I'm sorry, thus the body is between its hands, like the tongs in the hands of the blacksmith, with which he accomplishes his work, which if strong and able to hold or grip the objects, the craftsman will achieve good results. But if the tongs are not good, the vessels will not be serviceable. Likewise, if there is a defect of any kind in the body, the function of the mind will be affected accordingly. It is for this reason that our perfect Torah keeps us away from anything that damages it. That's very good. Let's keep reading. The author of the Sefer HaChinuk goes on to say, This is the simple explanation for all the forbidden kinds of food. 
And let us not wonder if the harmful effect of some of them is unknown to us and to the medical experts, for the trustworthy healer who warned us about them is wiser than they. And how foolish he who thinks that only what he can understand can cause damage or bring benefit. You should realize that it is for our benefit that the reason and the harm has not been revealed, lest men, convinced of their great wisdom, will rise and maintain that the harm caused by certain things declared by the Torah exists only in a certain place where this was decreed, or only with a certain person who determined it. Lest one of the foolish be persuaded of this, their reason has not been revealed to save us from this error." Basically, this, the author of the Sefer HaChinuch is explaining that God knows why he created us this way, and God knows why he forbade certain foods, and why he allowed other foods. So we, modern man, need not um, imagine that we are smarter than God in trying to determine what we can put into our bodies, and what we can um, um, uh, restrict from putting in our bodies, and try to determine from a scientific method why all the commandments are given the way they are given. I think it's safe to say that the wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of man. And in God's perfect wisdom, we would do well, as God's children, not to question the validity or why we should do certain things or not do certain things. Rather, it is up to us to simply say, Yes, Lord, I will do that which you tell me to do, and I will abstain from that which you tell me to abstain from. That's basically what the author is teaching us. Let's continue. Um... One of the, um, another well-known sage by the name of uh, Abravanel, Abravanel is how uh, uh, Nachama Leibowitz writes his name, uh, he has a commentary at the Leviticus chapter 3, and he asked the question, quote, and several reasons have been given for why, actually, God chose fat and blood to be offered up on the altar, and why he forbade Israel, their consumption. Um, the fourth reason, he, he says, that has been given is that Health and beauty cause sinning, and blood causes good health, and fat generates beauty. The one who, in other words, um, let me just interject, he, he's trying to show that it's actually a challenge for our Creator to give us a prohibition against things that we would normally like to ingest and, and, and associate with, with good qualities, uh, fat causing beauty, uh, blood causing good health. Because in, in, a, in a sense, that is true. Um, a sickly person is a person who is um, has a, a, a lack of these ingredients within his body. If his blood is poor, and um, and if he's too thin, if he's malnourished, then sure, um, you might think I need to put more of this in my body. Anyway, um, Abravanel goes on to say, quote, "The one whose blood boils sins." as the youngsters do. And fat also causes sinning, as it is stated in Deuteronomy 32.15, quote, Yeshurun grew fat and kicked, end quote. It is therefore that God commanded to burn on the altar the two bodily elements that cause sinning as an illusion, that is, uh, that it is proper for a person to burn and annul his desires and all that causes him to sin, end quote. And then um, um, Nechama Leibovitz adds a sixth Midrashic reason, quote, Sin is associated with the red color, and forgiveness is represented by white. As the prophet states, quote, If your sins will be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool, end quote. That's, of course, from Isaiah 1, verse 18. 
The Lord therefore commanded to offer up on the altar the blood as an allusion to confessing their sins before him in the spirit of, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, which is lifted from Psalm 32.5. And that they offer up also the fat as an allusion to forgiveness, as it is stated, quote, Yours is the power to forgive, also from the book of Psalm, this time 130, verse 4. Thus the blood and the fat were offered up to indicate that just as the sins come before him, so also does forgiveness come from him. Nechama Leibovitz goes on to say, Compare Rambam's reason for the prohibition of eating chalev um, to his reason for the prohibition of the consumption of blood, fat versus blood. What is the difference between the two reasons? And now um, Leibovitz is going to compare uh, after we've already kind of done an overview midrashically of God forbidding us from eating one or the other, then we now have um, uh, a comparison between the two. Rambam's Guide for the Perplexed, chapter 3, verse 46, quote, Although blood was very unclean in the eyes of the Sabians, the pagans, they nevertheless partook of it because they thought it was the food of the spirits, and by eating it, Man has something in common with the spirits which join him and tell him future events according to the notion that people generally have spirits. They were, however, people who objected to eat... There were, I'm sorry, however, people who objected to eating blood as a thing naturally disliked by man. They killed a beast, received the blood in a vessel or in a pot, and ate of the flesh of that beast whilst, whilst sitting around the blood. They imagined that in this manner their spirits would come to partake of the blood which was their food whilst they, the people, were eating the flesh and thus the love, brotherhood, and friendship with the spirits were established because they all dined together at one table and in one group that the spirits would appear to them in dreams, inform them of coming events, and be favorable to them. End quote. That's lifted from Rambam's Guide for the Perplexed. Interesting quote, considering the um, pagan practices that uh, that are all around us today, really gives you a more of a motivation to steer clear of eating blood, doesn't it? Let's keep reading. Um, Leibovitz sums up our thoughts in this last portion to this section. Quote: People accepted such ideas in those days; they were general, and their correctness was not doubted by the common people. Therefore, the Torah, which is perfect in the eyes of those who know it, and seeks to cure mankind of these lasting diseases, forbade the eating of blood and emphasized the prohibition in exactly the same terms as it emphasizes it, uh, as it emphasizes idolatry, which is, quote, I will set my face against that soul that eats blood, etc., End quote, which is lifted from Leviticus 17.10. The same language, Leibovitz goes on to note, is employed in reference to him who gives of his seed unto Molech. Language um, which reads, quote, Then I will set my face against that man, etc. It's interesting correlation, as I pause and uh, comment on Leibovitz's um, uh, comparison there. Leibovitz, uh, she goes on to say, There is, besides idolatry and eating blood, no other sin in reference to which these words are used. For the eating of blood used to lead to a kind of idolatry, the words, uh, the worship of spirits. The Torah declared the blood pure and made it 
the means of purifying what was sprinkled upon. Quote, she lifts, uses the verse out of Exodus, and sprinkle it upon Aharon and upon his garments, etc., and he shall be hallowed in his garments. End quote. That's Exodus, Exodus 29.21. Furthermore, Leibovitz goes on to say, the Torah commanded the blood to be sprinkled, sprinkled upon the altar, and the whole service was performed by pouring it out and not by collecting it like, like the pagans did. And, the Torah says, quote, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement, end quote. That's, of course, taken from Leviticus 17.11. And there it is poured out, as it is stated, quote, and he shall pour out all the blood, end quote. That's from Leviticus 4.18. Very good passage um, as we compared um, um, Chelev and, um, and Dam. Fat and blood, respectively. Uh, the Torah, as it were, then, even though we don't fully understand why God would tell us today or back then, don't ingest these particular items uh, from animals. Don't eat blood. Don't eat. Don't ingest blood. Don't ingest the uh, choice fats of animals. Um, we may not fully understand why God prohibited these things, but using the the uh, midrashic information that we've been given, as well as the um, insight that is provided to us by the Ruach HaKodesh within us, isn't it safe to say that God knows better, and Papa knows best, I should say, God knew better, and in his infinite knowledge, he gives us commandments that, as I said at the very beginning of my commentary, are for our good. I would agree. Let's move on. This next section of my commentary is entitled, Brother to Brother. In chapter 8 of our parasha, we find Moshe playing the unusual role of high priest himself. And that Hashem instructs him to anoint his brother Aharon and the sons of Aharon for the priest uh, and for the office of priest and high priests. An important point is brought out in verse 8. I'm sorry, an important point is brought out in chapter 8 and verse 3. We learn that the entire community assembled within the proximity of the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, if you were to pull up a little scale model or an, a diagram of the, um, the whole Mishkan area, the, the, um, the Chatzar, the courtyard, and the, uh, the Mizbeach and everything and all the pieces in there, you'll see that obviously everyone cannot fit within the small space of the entrance of the tent of meeting. Even if we take it at face value, the entrance being like, say, the doorway between the posts, we know that that everyone couldn't fit there. Yet Hashem had them gather there for a very important purpose, I believe. Remember that it was Aharon, the same individual now being inaugurated as the high priest of the people. Uh, he's the one that perpetrated the building of the golden calf way back in Exodus, remember? I think it was Exodus chapter 32. Um, yes, Aharon was the officiator of that gross incident. Yet... By demonstrating in full view of everyone assembled, which is why I'm bringing this point out, and demonstrating in front of everyone that Hashem was still choosing him as his anointed one, chosen to fulfill a very important and vital function within the community, the high priest, the people catch a glimpse of the awesome forgiveness and the mercy of their heavenly Father. We know that God forgives. We know that people sin. And yet we know that God can and does forgive us of our sins. We know that we sin, we know that God offers forgiveness, and as we interact with God on a personal level, God offers forgiveness to us. He extends His mercy towards us. We don't deserve it. 
Aaron did not deserve this, this forgiveness. To be sure, Aaron did not deserve to be promoted to high priest. And yet, God not only promotes Aaron to high priest, but he does it in full view of the community of Israel. And in this public display, we see God basically saying to everyone, you all saw Aaron's sin. I'm filling in as if I were speaking God's words. You all saw God, You all saw Aaron's sin. In fact, you all asked Aaron to build the golden calf. And now, to demonstrate that I am a God who extends mercy to everyone, I'm going to forgive Aaron of that gross error, and I'm going to promote him to the office of high priest to officiate between you and me in the days to come. Consider the truth of this passage from a previous portion of the Torah. Um, a, a very in- interesting genealogical list appears in Exodus chapter 6, verses 14 to 30 in relationship to God choosing Aaron um, and Moses, I might add. Um, in uh, Exodus 6, verses 14 through 30, at first glance, uh, it seems to be out of place with the, re- with the narrative flow as you're reading that chapter. We must remember that the people were greatly discouraged as a result of the cruel forced labor of their taskmasters, and as well as the recent turn of events with the punishment inflicted as a result of the apostasy of the golden calf, and that they as ordinary human beings were subject to doubt and disappointment, just like we are. You can read Exodus 6, verse 9. I believe that the list in Exodus 6 appears early on in the story to sort of validate, as it were, the authority of Moshe and his prophet brother Aharon. In fact, um, Moshe, the human author of the book of Shemot, seems to indicate this detail of their ministry more than once in verses uh, 26 and 27 of chapter 6 of Shemot. In other words, there should be no mistake as to who exactly Moshe and Aaron were in relationship to the people. And exactly who were Moshe and Aaron? We ask ourselves as well. Well, let's answer the question. Well, they were the very ones standing before the people now, being demonstrated as Hashem's appointed, appointed, uh, 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 anointed chosen ones. They were the ones being anointed as the priest and the high priest and, and the leaders of Israel, right in front of all the people. That's who Aaron and Moshe were. I'm sure that the golden calf incident wasn't completely erased from the memories of these two great leaders. You know, they're standing here getting anointed and they're thinking in the back of their minds, gosh, we're such gross sinners. We're not worthy of this uh, promotion. And that's really the point I'm trying to make in my commentary here. Um, imagine what they must have been thinking that day. Were they perfect? Not on your life. Far from it. Would they yet make serious mistakes in the future to come? Absolutely. And yet... and Well, let me back up. They're going to sin, and they're going to make mistakes. And, and really, we should fairly ask ourselves, would Hashem still punish him for these shortcomings? Yeah, you get the idea. They will. They're sinners. They're going to make mistakes. God's going to punish them for that. However, um, by reading ahead into the narrative, we find that even though they were chosen for an awesome task, which placed them in the very presence of God, sometimes on an everyday basis, their lives were lived out the exact same way that Hashem expects us to live as his children today. And how is that? Answer the question for me. By faith. It's no different. That's the point I want to make as well. Sometimes we read the Bible, especially when we read people uh, like Moshe and David and Aaron and, and Shlomo and, 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 and other great heroes of faith. And we look at them and we say, gosh, I can't be like them. I'm no one. I'm so, I'm so simple. I'm so insignificant in God's scheme of things. But don't tell yourself that. You are the righteousness of God in Messiah. 
You are the light of the world. Yeshua told us so in Matthew chapter 5. I read that in the, in the first portion, uh, the first uh, part of our commentary. We are God's chosen ones. We are his priests. And we are expected to walk the walk of faith just like Moshe and Aharon were. It's no different today. Anointed? Were they anointed? Surely they were anointed, right down to their decorated belts. Read um, Leviticus chapter 8, verses 6 through 13, as well as verse 30. I think what it's safe to say is that it's easy sometimes today to place the Old Testament saints into some sort of different reality of life than that of our own today. And we like to imagine with all that glory radiating from the holiest place, that the people there were more than human. They were superhuman or something like that. And that it was easy to serve God. And we say, well, today it's so hard to serve God. No, it's not. We complain that we live in a day and age when the voice of God is difficult to hear. Did Moshe and Aharon really have it easier? What about our Lord Yeshua? Let's draw a comparison between him. He was 100% human, just like Moshe and Aharon. He was 100% human, just like you and me. 100% human, and yet, here's the mystery, he was 100% God. Moreover, the Torah tells us that in facing temptation, oh yes, he was tempted, but what's the result? He didn't sin. That's right. What an awesome reality for me to rest my faith in. Ariel, remind yourself that your master, Yeshua the Messiah, was a man just like you. When he saw women, there was the potential to be tempted with lust just like you are. He was composed of the same stuff that I am. 100% human. He was not superhuman. He was 100% human. He was a man just like me. I have to remind myself of that fact. And yet, in the, the, the test of, of, of temptation to sin, he did not sin. And it was not just because he was 100% God that he didn't sin. He didn't sin because he chose not to sin. He didn't sin because he, he surrendered himself to the Father. And he said, Father, fill me with your spirit and I shall not disobey you. Moshe and Aaron sinned and Hashem forgave them. Right? I sin and God forgives me. Yeshua didn't sin, but he was a man. And so the, the tension is, is, is in the fact that the potential to sin was there, I believe. He didn't have a sin nature like you and I. Don't get me wrong. But because he was a man, he, he suffered the same things that we suffer as men. He was plagued with, uh, with, with, with the temptations that we have. And yet, he chose to not sin, and in his choice, he provides for me the perfect example of someone who does not sin. And here's the proof. I do not always sin, and neither do you listening to this commentary. We don't always sin. The temptation arises, the test is in, in our face, it's before us, and the choice is there, and what happens? The Spirit of God steps, steps in, lickety-split, and tells me, Ariel, Turn away, look away, run away. And I can, and I do. And in cases like that, I walk the footsteps of the master. It doesn't mean I'm perfect, but it means I don't sin in those cases. And that's what the Messiah is trying to teach me by his sinless walk.
By comparison, Moshe and Aaron sinned. And they turned around and sinned again, just like I do. And yet, still, Hashem forgave them. And these were the two men that handled all that holy stuff that we say, well, they were different than us. They had all that holy stuff and they had the presence of God. It was easier for them than it is for me. No, they sinned and they sinned and they sinned again. And God forgave them. These are the ones that we're reading about in our current Torah portions. Where does that place you and me? Where does that, how does that speak to us? Going back to Yeshua. He became like us, frail and human, so that he might intimately identify with our weaknesses. Oh yes, including Moshe and Aharon. Yeshua was like them. He was like us. He is our ultimate high priest. He intercedes for us. He realizes as he intercedes for us, as he pleads before the Father on our behalf. He says, Father, Abba, these ones on earth that you have entrusted to my care, won't you please forgive them? Why? Because they are frail. He knows the stuff we're made of. He knows our proclivities. He doesn't excuse them. Rather, he empowers us with his spirit to make the right choice. Because of Yeshua's anointing, we are also counted as anointed. Consider these closing words from the book of Hebrews, which is called Messianic Jews, in David Stern's version. Quote, For both Yeshua, who sets people apart for God, and the ones being set apart, have a common origin. Let me read that again. For both Yeshua, who sets people apart for God, and the ones being set apart have a common origin. We are both the same. Yeshua is a man, but Yeshua is God. But as a man, he understands our weaknesses. This is why, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, this is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, them being us, of course. When he says, quote, I will proclaim your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. End quote. Also, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, I will put my trust in him. And then it goes on, Here I am along with the children God has given me. These are words of the Master. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, Therefore, since the children, that's you and I, share a common physical nature as human beings, with Yeshua, I might add, he, Yeshua, became like them and shared that same human nature. Isn't that exactly what I just said? Yes. So that by his death he might render ineffective the one who had the power over death, that is, the adversary, and thus set free those, that's us, who had been in bondage all their lives because of their fear of death. That's you and me, people. We are the ones spoken about in this passage. We are the ones who were in bondage all our lives because of the fear of death. But because of the death of Yeshua, we no longer have to live with that fear. Let's keep reading the book of Hebrews. Indeed, it is obvious that he does not take hold of angels to help them. And I might add, why not? Because angels are not made of the stuff that we're made of. Angels are angelic. The stuff that angels are made of or not is not the stuff that we're made of. Angels are ministering spirits. Malachi Hasharim. Uh, Hasharet. 
we are not Malachi Hasha'aret. We are we are human. <laughs> On the contrary, the uh, writer to the Hebrews is going to say, he takes hold of the seed of Avraham. That's you and me. The writer of the Hebrews goes on to say, This is why he had to become like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful Kohen Gadol in the service of God, making a kapara for the sins of the people, a covering, a washing away for the sins of the people. For since he himself suffered death when he was put to the test, he is able to help those who are being tested now. End quote. Jesus is our high priest. Yeshua was a man. And for people who object to me calling Yeshua a man, explain to me then how he was able to die. If he was 100% God and he was not 100% man, then he could not have died. The man Yeshua died. He did not swoon on the cross. He did not pass out and they didn't take him down and, 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 and put him in the grave so he could rest and recover. No. He died. And we die. And therefore he is like us. And in his death we have also died. To what? To sin and to shame. And in that death we have also identified with his resurrection. And in his resurrection we have put off the sinful nature. We have been clothed with the righteousness of God. Now we can live and walk in newness of life without the fear of condemnation, without the fear of spiritual death. Death is no longer the sting. Or I should say, death has lost its sting. It's no longer the power um, that, that holds man in its grip. If you do not know this man Yeshua today, I urge you to invite him into your life. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to fill him with your spirit. Ask him to cause you to walk into his words, to walk into the ways of life, his Torah, the teachings of God. Invite Yeshua into your mind and into your heart. He'll fill you to overflowing with his goodness and his mercy. Don't get me wrong. The battle is on. If you invite Yeshua into your life today, the battle is on. You become an enemy to the adversary. And Satan will, be, will do everything he can to stop you from being a light to the world. The light that we talked about that burns on the altar continually. Satan doesn't want you to be a light. But God wants you to step into the light. Invite Yeshua into your heart and your light will shine. Amen? Amen. The closing blessing for our commentary, and for the Torah, is as follows. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher natan lanu Torah temet v'chaye olam nata batochenu. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha-Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You've given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua. 
through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A, number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. Thank you.